This is episode 230 of That Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is supported in part by listeners just like you who joined our listener community on Patreon. You can join us as a patron right now at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. And show those contrasts between the kind of functional borage, for example, which is big and bushy and functional and keeps popping up and how Hall treats women and potentially therefore how Susanna would have, what Susanna would have been gathering. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. When you visit Stratford-upon-Avon, you can stop in and see a place called Hall's Croft. It's right down the road from Shakespeare's birthplace and is the house where William Shakespeare's oldest daughter, Susanna, lived with her husband, John Hall. John Hall was a physician in Stratford-upon-Avon and is thought to have influenced, if not outright advised, William Shakespeare on the many uses of medicinal plants that we see come up in Shakespeare's plays. A new study being led by our guest this week, Elsa Grant Ferguson, not only aims to shed light on the kinds of plants that might have been used there at Hallscroft, but looks to literally replant them. In a project funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, partnering with Shakespeare Birthplace Trust in collaboration with the University of Brighton, Susanna's Garden Project will plant a sensory well-being garden based on the plants used for women's health by John Hall and probably Susanna in Stratford-upon-Avon that includes the same plants Elsa's research reveals would have been used there by the Hall family to treat family and friends in the Bard's hometown. The exciting thing about this garden is not only the opportunity to see historic plants come literally back to life. But as Elsa Grant Ferguson joins us today to share, this garden research project specifically explores Susanna's role in medical care as she worked alongside her husband. Ilsa Grant Ferguson is Principal Lecturer at the University of Brighton, and she is currently holder of the HRC RDE Fellowship as a PI for a major research project in collaboration with the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, focusing on Shakespeare's daughter, Susanna, and her home, Halls Croft, and the mediation of early modern women in heritage presentation and cultural memory. Find out more about Dr. Grant Ferguson's work in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Elsa. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's really good to be here. How would plants in the garden at Hallscroft have been used by Susanna herself? Um, this is kind of what we're trying to find out, actually. So I'm really glad you asked that question. So we know that there would have been, it would only be logical that there would be a big space in that garden or the garden would be quite a big plot that would be utilized for medicinal plant growing because John Hall, Susanna's husband, as your listeners might already be familiar with, was a practicing physician, a medical man. And in that time, women who were married to medical practitioners and some women who practiced medicine, which we can come back to later, would have been uh, potentially tending to the garden, making making the actual medicines from the garden. They would have been uh, very much involved in that. So Although we're never going to have, as we as is often the case, kind of documentary evidence of what she did with those plants, uh, we do know that it would be highly unlikely that she wasn't heavily involved in the growing and using of them 
and producing uh, some forms of remedies for them at the very least. So what kind of ailments were being treated with these plants? So the ones that I'm particularly interested in, so like the, basically John Hall was um, would have been treating, as a, as a male practitioner, he'd have been treating all sorts of ailments among all sorts of people. But what's interesting about the, the garden we're going to be planting, planting is we're focusing on the plants that we know were used specifically by Hall in his casebook and more widely by other practitioners for women's reproductive health, women's, specifically women's health. And those ailments that I'm particularly interested in are really fascinating. So we see um, treatments for kind of menstrual problems, um, skipped periods, as we'd call it now, or um, heavy periods. We would see lots of treatments for something that was called what was known at the time as suffocation of the mother, which sounds like a really strange phrase to us now and really fascinating. But basically, at that time, you had this these new ideas about women's health, stepping away from the idea that women were perhaps in some way spiritually being ill-affected, you know, in terms of of demonic or witch-based kind of problems and actually seeing them as biological, which is also comes with its own problems for women and kind of harks back to the kind of classical idea of hysteria and the idea of the womb as kind of pernicious and difficult and dynamic. But the good news for women is that it's that it's just biological and not and not spiritual. And so suffocation of the mother was something that we might now, I mean, I would hazard to say something like PMS or PMT in the UK, um, premenstrual syndrome, things where you might find women might find themselves distressed or people who are experiencing menstruation might feel distressed, anxious, in pain, in panic, unable to sleep, those kind of things. They were sometimes called by this name, as were other things, suffocation of the mother. And that actually means the womb being suffocating, being sort of stuck and blocked. So something we see treated a lot is that suffocation of the mother or something called uterine passion, which you could, I suppose, translate in a similar way. And also to do with childbirth, post uh, trying to deal with post-birth fever, trying to avert miscarriage, trying to save pregnancies that seem in danger and treat women who are struggling after birth with uh, things called things like frenzy after childbirth, which again, we'd maybe see as postnatal depression, postnatal anxiety, those kind of things. Well, I know that I, I understand the metaphorical sense of feeling like you've been taken over by a demon or you're being cursed by something <laughs> spiritual with with these issues but i i'm i'm grateful to see that they were finding some solutions and surprised really because i would have expected this this stigma around witches specifically in this time period to have prevented a woman especially someone like susanna who was in an up standing citizen in the community, I wouldn't have expected her to want to participate in something that might cast a shadow of of suspicion of witchcraft onto her. So how was she able to operate here and interact with these plants that her husband had there in the garden and not get in trouble personally? It's a, a really good question. And probably I'm going to give too long an answer. So, uh, you know, stop me. But basically, I think to some extent, we 
we have as a contemporary society, I'd say in the sort of UK and the US especially, really got quite carried away and quite excited by the idea of of kind of plant remedies being related to witchcraft. So women as sort of wise women being seen as witches. In actual fact, in England at the time, women using plants, using remedies that are accessible to them, kind of domestic medicine for their own families, and the wives of physicians, especially, so they're in a position where they're there, as it were, helping their husbands. That is completely widespread. Because if you imagine a world where there is no antibiotic, there is no understanding of what a germ is, there is no, there's not even washing hands before delivering a baby, that has, comes a lot later. People are needing to treat themselves. And calling an apothecary, a physician, a medical doctor, anybody who might be able to do that professionally is expensive. And so women are going to be seen as treating especially their children and potentially themselves and their husbands uh, with domestically. And the wives of physicians are therefore expected to be part of supporting their husband in, in that. Women who practiced medicine themselves or what we can recognize as medicine are obviously fewer, but people are starting at that time to see medicine as something you, inverted commas, qualify for in the way that we see it. You go to university, you become a doctor. Obviously, women were not doing that in that period, but you do have really respectable women. The example I would give is Grace Mildmay, who was a titled aristocracy, and she is creating plant remedies on a bulk scale and treating a wide range of patients. So it is not surprising at all that Susanna would have been able to treat or or contribute to the treatment, be that through creating remedies or, or whatever. It's not that unusual at all. The link with witchcraft, if we've got time, that is quite interesting because there are other areas in which you might expect women to carry suspicion. Witchcraft, the accusation of witchcraft often goes hand in hand with living your life, I suppose, as a woman in a way that is not recognized as acceptable. So perhaps women who might be living alone, unmarried women, or women who might have behaviors that people find unusual, eccentric, different in some way, marrying up with doing things in a place where they're unsupervised with inverted commas with with plants and things. That's where it comes in true. But I think the idea of woman treating people in itself being seen as as witchcraft is perhaps something that's overstated. So it's more about the context rather than what they were doing. Yeah, I agree. I think it's about the context. And I think it's also as as is so often the case, perhaps, you know, through time immemorial is, is the perception of whether women are doing it in an autonomous way, and whether women are doing it outside of patriarchal control that might be the the key question to to consider, I think. So you mentioned that Susanna would have been involved, or that's highly likely she would have been involved in creating some of these remedies. So was she, do we have any records of her treating people with plants from the garden? We don't have a record of that. The records that we have, I mean, the records of treatment of patients, of anybody treating anybody, are are very rare at that period. So because of the brilliant new translation of John Hall's casebook, so John Hall wrote down 
some of his most interesting cases, successful and a few unsuccessful cases in Latin. And until a couple of years ago, there was only a partial 17th century translation of that. And then Greg Wells, who was a doctor himself and lived in Stratford, um, he actually did this incredible translation that we just now have access to. Sadly, Greg Wells passed away um, before it could be published, but it has been published with the support of Paul Edmondson, who's uh, head of research at the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. And we now have this, this full translation of the Latin. Um, and so having that in itself is huge. It's, it's an incredible thing. There are, um, Grace Mildmay, who I just mentioned, actually wrote down some of her cases. So we do have one woman who did that. But even, you know, in general, it's not something that we have a lot surviving and women certainly not. So we don't. What we do have, though, is some really interesting stuff. So we have the treatment of, of Susanna in recorded in that book and one of them where it states she took or she she takes as opposed to just I prescribed um so the voice is is quite interesting there that we have this sense that she's taking things you can read that different ways especially as it's a translation from the latin but there's some implication that she has some autonomy in what she's taking so there's that there's also the fact that there's yeah there's a, more women than men recorded And yet there's no evidence to suggest that John Hall would have treated more women than men. There's no logic to that. And so one wonders whether there's a female influence in the collating of that and the kind of understanding of women's health. So there's that. So we have these kind of implications that she's treating. We also know that women were very much involved in treatment. And the very idea that he would be such a prominent physician and she wouldn't be involved is, is perhaps not quite believable. So what we're actually having to work with is, in a way, around the absence, we're having to kind of piece together with precedent and kind of solid bits of evidence elsewhere what she might have done. Now, you mentioned that his casebooks are, you know, just percentage wise, there's more women cases recorded in the casebooks than men. And and obviously, you've addressed some of the reasons why there might be that inequity there. But I wonder, what kind of doctor does that mean we can surmise John Hall was? I mean, they didn't have an OBGYN in the 16th century, for example. So is there any, I guess, reason around like he wasn't, he's not considered a woman doctor, he was just had that many women recorded. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is a fascinating question. And and in a way, um, something that that I'm going to be researching further in the project. And that's not to say I, I can't answer it slightly now, but I think there's I've, I've got a feeling that that more will emerge. I just feel um, there's a few ways to look at that. Women's health is really fascinating. And it is a time when, as I as I mentioned earlier, you've got this movement away from the woman sort of woman's health and mental health and reproductive health as being seen in some way interlaced with fears around the demonic or fears around all sorts of things to do with women's bodies and starting to be seen perhaps more scientifically at this point you know there are ebbs and flows in that so you could argue that as a scholar he's interested in women's health because you could argue he is being quite to some extent moving forwards in quite a progressive way in the way that he's treating them. So given that all your listeners are going to be, I think, really interested in how Shakespeare dealt with women's health, if we make the comparison for those listeners that are familiar with Macbeth, for example, where we have a doctor called and he says, whoa, this is beyond me, you need a priest. This kind of idea is, is this madness or is this a demon or what's going on? 
if you look at sort of collaborative writing later in the career, so you look at Two Noble Kinsmen, for example, where you have this, is it a spoof or a kind of, I don't know what of Ophelia, but you have the jailer's daughter. When a doctor is called for her green sickness, which is seen as a kind of blockage of the womb, often through sort of virginal blockage, the doctor prescribes sex. And this is really, really concerning for her father in that scene. John Hall is not treating women like that. He is treating women the same as he's treating men with the same kinds of autonomy. You see women saying he's recording that she didn't really want to do that. So we did this. We see things like they're treated entirely with sort of plants and compounds and things. There's no suggestion of spiritual or sexual treatment of women. So you could argue that maybe it's that he's being progressive. And so he's asserting that by writing it down. That That's one art, uh, way of arguing it. Could be that he's working closely with his wife and therefore the interest in women's health is coming from her. And we do see a woman there who only has one child, who is treated twice in the book, including for melancholy including for constipation, pain in the stomach. She might be interested in her own health. He might be interested in her health. And he also treats his daughter as a teenage girl for her menstrual problems. So it's also, is this a man who is recording women's health because women's health is fascinating? These are all open and I think really interesting areas for further research. Absolutely. We'll be looking forward to seeing what you uncover there because that, that's just a fun question, I think, to look at. But tell us more about the garden itself. So what are some of your favorite plants that are being added to this garden plot? This is such a lovely question, isn't it? Um, my favorite plants. I mean, the kind of plants that are being used for these complaints some of them are just beautiful. So we have peonies, we have roses, we have everything all the way through to kind of rhubarb, which is enormous and kind of strange looking and, and, and kind of ugly, but also kind of beautiful. So I think my my favorites are are the ones that that we can really contrast and show those contrasts between the kind of functional borage, for example, which is big and bushy and functional and keeps popping up and how Hall treats women and potentially therefore how Susanna would have, what Susanna would have been gathering through to the kind of really ornamental and beautiful smelling plants like the rose, which is often, often used in, in his recording of what they're treating women with, partly to make things palatable and partly for its own, for its own uh, properties. So for me, I think it's the, it's the opportunity to bring plants together that are not usually plants together, the ornamental with the perhaps the the less beautiful, the the tiny with like the tiny marigold, which is used a great deal with the huge borage and and rhubarb and kind of get across the functionality of, of that space, I think. So what are some of the functionalities? So what would the peonies have been used to treat? Okay, so this is really interesting. So suffocation of the mother, which I just uh, mentioned earlier, is recorded as being treated with peony, among other plants in one case. Obstructed periods, so people missing their periods, but not through pregnancy. So problems around that, you see peony. And you see rhubarb comes up a lot because even today, I think people sort of uh, take rhubarb for digestive complaints and things like that. So this idea of your body being blocked in every in every way, um, rhubarb comes up for that. So there's there's these kind of things. What I find really interesting, though, what some of your if, if you have some listeners as well who are kind of tuning in thinking, actually, I'm more interested in in my own health or whatever. There are actually 
things that are used that we still see used for similar things today that, that might be quite surprising. So blessed thistle, which comes up a lot in treating what we now know to be hormonal issues, but of course, hormones were not, they didn't know what hormones were, are still, some people still treat themselves, self, self-medicate with things like that for uh, women's hormonal issues, things like menopause and, and, and periods. So that's really interesting because you're seeing, you know, perhaps people aren't aware that they're taking from their own counters some things that, that would have been grown in this garden and we will be hopefully growing again. That's fascinating. I hope to see the plants. And I, I wonder, is this actually being built at Halls, Halls Croft? How can we come and see the plants or where can we explore what's being planted there and how they would have been used in Shakespeare's lifetime? Okay, so I'm as you can imagine, I'm really glad you asked me that that question. So what will happen is at the moment we're kind of in the stage, it's at the moment they're not there yet. We're in the planting stage. We're working with some fantastic uh, experts in, in heritage gardening, and we're just at that stage of getting it in place. So next year, 2023, the first things it will be used for are, in fact, for local groups and groups that are for sort of well-being purposes because the point of this garden is not to create a replica but to use these plants to create a pleasant sensory space um, where we can connect with our past rather than just learn about it in a book we can actually connect with it and also connect with our present and in early modern garden manuals for women it actually mentions what we would recognize as a sensory garden or well-being it talks about things that sound nice or smell nice. So the first uses of this garden, and it will be at Hallscroft, it will be literally in front of the house uh, from the garden direction, will be for local groups and, and, and groups that, that might need the space for their well-being. And that's where the first uh, uses will be. Further down the line, uh, once we're more established with that, hopefully it'll be wide, more widely opened um, and we might have events there. But the first instance will be that. But the other good news, especially for listeners that are not perhaps local to to the area or even to the nation that it's in, is that actually we're going to be having a digital, two or three digital things that will be able to connect you to that as well. So we'll have a soundscape that will feature elements of the garden so that people can be helped to imagine themselves into the garden and into that space. And we'll also have a digital, a spatial archive where people can go into a room and explore and maybe actually find out about those plants that are being used and how we know uh, the things we know by exploring the archive for themselves. So even if you can't get there um, to start with, you will be able to get there in your from your own settee or from your own desk and actually experience those things. And those will be available from 2023 as well. We are so looking forward to those. And we'll have links in the show notes. So be sure to go there so you'll know um, where to sign up to be sure to follow this work and which websites to check out and all that. So make sure you check the show notes for that. Um, Now, Elsa, we ask everyone that visits with us about helping us explore the topic further. And we would like your advice here as well. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to explore medicinal plants and the life of John and Susanna Hall a little bit further? Where should we start? Okay, so there's a few directions that I would suggest. And I think with a project or with a with a conversation we're having here, there's different directions people might be interested in. So I think if people are interested in sort of Shakespeare's family and life in Stratford at that time, um, great places to start on those are the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust website, which has a, um, a, a site that it has a page about the halls, it has a page about Susanna, page about Hallscroft. But also 
uh, the Folger Shakespeare Library, which has something called, uh, which hosts something called Shakespeare Documented, which is a fantastic site where you can actually find the documents we do have and sort of make your own mind up in a way by looking actually at the primary sources, the documents that we have photographed in some cases so that you can see how do we know that Susanna could read and write or how do we know where she lived or whatever that's a great site on the plants the most I mean what's really fun is to look at early modern what you call herbals so kind of if you like an encyclopedia of plants they became really really popular still probably known and recognizable to some of your listeners might be cold peppers Uh, you still hear about cold peppers herbal but a really fabulous one is Gerard's herbal which there is I think an online if you look at if you just google it i think there's a there are some free facsimiles on it online but there's also some uh, images through the shakespeare birthplace trust that you can view as well and that is a huge book and probably uh, one that you would expect john hall and susanna to have consulted themselves it was really influential at the time that'll show you all of the plants what they were used for recommendations for growing them you could even use it to try and make your own early modern garden in your backyard as well That's fantastic. We will place links to all of these in the show notes for today. We'll also have some pictures from Gerard's Herbal available in the show notes so you can see what some of these plants look like. So make sure you stop by there to see those. Now, Elsa, we ask everybody this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Oh, no, that's nice, isn't it? For Shakespeareans, we don't have to use one up for Shakespeare, which is which is always good. I thought that was fair, yes. Yeah, I, I think I couldn't survive on a desert island with without a woman's voice as well as, as the men's voices that I've been allowed. So I think I'm going to say, can I have a complete works? Cassidy, am I allowed? Or yes, you are, be- uh, certainly. Okay. I might have the complete works of Jane Austen. And I'll tell you why, because I grew up just near her home. And so to me, she reminds me of home and sort of a little group of people that I can recognize. But I think also because she's one of the women writers that I first read that was not contemporary to me when I was a teenager. And so to me, she's kind of, even though she's a lot later than I'm studying now and I'm researching now, I find her a fascinating example of a kind of genius uh, that isn't always called a genius. So I think I'm going to have Jane Austen's complete work so that I can have a, a balance of, of women's and men's voices on the desert island. <laughs> I think that's an excellent selection. What's next for you on the journey to the garden? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Right. Well, so much. I mean, this is part of a much bigger project. So this has a, a, a big grant from the Arts and Humanities Research Council here in the in the UK to really build a whole uh, range of of new research and material around Susanna herself. So I'm super excited because I'm going to be working with kind of creative, uh, working with actors, gardeners, um, you know, all sorts of people on building different approaches to who Susanna was and how she can help us to make connections with our past, to, to fill some gaps in history. So I think the next, what's exciting is working with those people, but also having um, the privilege of having sort of another year to go of researching this fascinating woman and hopefully bringing to the world somebody that's been unfairly forgotten and might be a really interesting person for people to get to know. That is so exciting. I am so thrilled about your project. I think it's just a great 
undertaking that you're doing. Can't wait to see it come to fruition. Elsa Grant Ferguson, thank you so much for being here today and walking us through the history of plants and the just getting to know Susanna Hall a little bit better. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much. It's been really lovely to talk to you. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. If you would like to see a picture of the plants that are being put in Susanna's garden, as well as copies of various herbals from Shakespeare's lifetime, so you can see pictures of the plants we're discussing today, along with a download of a list of medicinal plants from Susanna's garden and various ailments those specific plants were used to treat, we have put that together and made it available all in the show notes for today's episode. The show notes, you can see visual content that coordinates with the history you're learning about on our show, along with more information about our guest, Elsa Grant Ferguson. You can follow her project and find a list of recommended resources. There's so much to explore about the garden today. Find all of it at CassidyCash.com slash episode 230. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP230. If you love the history that you're learning about here each week and you'd like to have a hand in helping us produce the show by making suggestions about guests you'd like to hear from or topics you'd like to have covered, then consider joining our listener community on Patreon. Not only can you support the show, but you get access to bonus content only available inside our patrons area, including video versions of the show, animated versions of Shakespeare's plays, exclusive documentary films, and more. Plus, there are even special patron extras like digital downloads and a monthly Shakespeare book club available at the higher tiers on Patreon. Explore all the benefits and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineering wizard is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.